Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. This is one of my favorite times of the year because it's when we here at Climate One recognize a scientist making a valuable contribution to public understanding of how burning fossil fuels is disrupting everything around us, leading to more severe floods, fires, extreme storms, droughts, really rocking our world. Yeah, practically all of us are seeing and experiencing these things in real time now. We're living through them. But explaining the underlying science can be really complicated and technical, especially when it comes to understanding how humans are causing climate disruption. Right, we understand a person with a gun shooting someone, but it's harder to understand how driving a gasoline car hurts somebody. So we rely on communicators such as authors and journalists to help decode the wonk and explain the science to a general audience. The goal being to engage people across the spectrum of experience and inspire them to action. And that's critically important because the discussion of science and human behavior has only become more polarized. So it's going to take the work of all of us, not just experts, to make durable change. It's the 13th year we've given out the Steven Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Communication. Named in honor of a prominent climate scientist and one of your mentors, Greg, Steve Schneider. Tell me a bit about him and why he was so impactful on your career. Steve was a fearless communicator of science and had a huge impact as a founding father of modern climate science. He had a big impact on me because in 2007, I went to the Russian Arctic aboard an icebreaker and had a climate epiphany. I learned a lot. I cried a lot. I came back and I went to Steve and he explained climate science for me in a personal tutorial. He later became the first member of the Climate One Advisory Council when I was starting this little thing that was just me called Climate One. So why did you create this award and, and name it after him? Because in 2010, he wrote to me, he was not in good health. He was recovering from cancer. He wrote to me from Europe saying, I got to stop burning the candle on both ends in the middle too. He planned to fly back from a scientific meeting in Europe and come to a Climate One dinner. And he died on the airplane. And that hit me really hard. And I decided to create this award in his honor because he was such a compelling, fierce communicator and could really distill science and make it relatable and very forceful. For example, he talked about the false equivalence that mainstream media outlets employed when reporting on climate science. Here he is in 2009 on the Climate One stage. When you're covering a complex topic like climate change or health or education or security, 
And there's no such thing as yes or no. There's all these gradations of possibilities with different probabilities attached. And you go out there and you take a 200-scientist report like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It goes through three years of writing, two rounds of reviews, a thousand review comments on every chapter, and then two petroleum geologists paid by you-know-which oil company because they have PhDs that give an equal status in a story or on television. You see, we get a little mad about that, and we call that utter distortion, and they say, oh, no, that's balance. It is not balance. It is utter distortion because they are not reporting the relative credibility of the multiple positions. And it means that you're leaving it up to the public and the political world to figure that out for themselves. And I'm delighted that this year our jury of experts chose atmospheric scientist Ben Santer to receive this award. Ben Santer recently retired from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He's now a scholar in residence at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and a visiting researcher at UCLA. He's won many other prestigious awards, including the famous MacArthur Fellowship. But he told me that this award is especially meaningful to him because he knew and admired Steve. Ben's work has literally changed what we know and understand about climate. His research identified so-called human fingerprints in atmospheric temperature and water vapor and ocean heat content. That led to the conclusion that humans are responsible for changing the global climate, a hugely significant finding. But that was a hard thing for some institutions and people to hear. And even now, there are many powerful people in corporations that do not want to own up to this fact. That's right, because it flies in the face of people claiming changes in climate are due to naturally occurring cycles. Many times we've heard people say, yeah, the climate's changing and it always has and it always will. Ben's work debunked all that and moved the denial machine on to other arguments. I talked with Ben Santer in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and we started by looking back at a moment early in his career, an encounter that defined his life's work and had a huge impact on how climate is discussed around the world. In 1995, you're in Madrid at a meeting of the IPCC. This is just a couple of years after their first Rio summit. And set the scene. Who's there? What's at stake? What's going on in Madrid in 95? IPCC plenary meeting. The goal of the meeting is for the governments of the world to approve the summary for policymakers that scientists have been working on for one and a half years and to accept the underlying report on which that summary is based. The first IPCC assessment in 1990 had essentially said the jury's out. We can't tell whether humans are affecting global climate. But in Madrid, the story was different, fundamentally different. And the bottom line finding was these infamous 12 words, the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate. It was the first time that the international scientific community spoke with one voice and said, we see it. We can formally identify a human-caused global warming signal. It's us. It's us, humans. It's us. And that was a big deal. There were countries present in Madrid like the Saudis and Kuwaitis, who did not like that finding. They recognized at a time really when scientists did not, that this was some sea change. It, it meant that at least there was the possibility that they would have to change the way they do business. 
and one of the people in the room in Madrid was your friend and my friend, Steve Schneider. Steve was the convening lead author, uh, one of the lead authors for the final chapter of that IPCC report called Advancing Our Understanding. That was the chapter that tried to chart the way forward. What are the important things to focus on scientifically? And Steve understood better than anyone else in the room the importance of those 12 words. And just to jump in, so people who haven't been there, these are literally screens with text on the, you know, big rooms with people literally haggling over commas and, and, and words, right? Hundreds of people arguing over one word. That's exactly right. Um, there was simultaneous translation, so the discussions on stage were being translated into Chinese, Russian, Japanese, and much of the final discussion in Madrid was about the nuances of language. How does a word like discernible translate into Japanese or Chinese? Does it have the same meaning? Mm -hmm. Who knew? As a scientist, nothing in your career prepares you for having these kind of discussions about the nuance and power of language. But we did, we arrive at these 12 words, we go out to dinner, I just want a beer, I'm hungry. And Steve Schneider was sitting next to me at the restaurant, this is about 2 a.m. on the morning of the 30th of November, and he turns to me in the way that he often did in conferences and said, this will change the world, this sentence. I had no idea what he meant. And it changed your life. How did it change your life? I think it's fair to say that those 12 words upset a lot of people. Powerful companies, organizations like the Global Climate Coalition, a consortium of energy interests, powerful congressmen like Dana Rohrabacher. They understood that this was fundamentally different in 1995 from 1990 and the jury is out. That wasn't threatening. This was threatening to corporate interests. So how do you attack the science? You take down the scientists, you go after the process, you argue that the process was political, not scientific. You argue as the Global Climate Coalition did that there was scientific cleansing, as they called it. This 1995, at the time that ethnic cleansing is going on in Bosnia, so that all uncertainties had been purged from the report. It was a nasty game. And then they actually came at you, and there was, this was one thing to write an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's another thing to come to your house. How did this opposition come to your doorstep? It's fair to say, as you did, that my life changed with those 12 words. I would be inextricably linked to them for the rest of my life. Nothing I could do or say would separate me from those 12 words. And a lot of people didn't like them. And some people didn't like them sufficiently to actually come to my doorstep. This happened when my son Nick and I were in our house in San Ramon, knock on the door about 10 o'clock at night. I go downstairs to answer the door. There's a dead rat on the doorstep and a guy driving away at high speed in a yellow Hummer shouting curses at me. 
The police told me to be on the lookout for yellow Hummers, which I have done diligently ever since then. <laughs> and you also, when you went, approached your car, you had some thoughts about... Yeah, I was afraid. There were people writing threatening letters, sending threatening emails. I had no idea what they were capable of doing. In my opinion, that was the beginning of organized climate denial and organized harassment of climate scientists. If you come up with findings we don't like and you have the temerity to publish them and speak publicly about them, we will come down on you like a ton of bricks. And it scared your son, too. It did. It was terrible. As a parent, you want to protect your kids. That's your prime directive, right? To keep them from harm. And the sense that my son Nick did not feel safe in our house after this dead rat on the doorstep incident made me so angry. And anger is toxic. You've got to figure out some way of dissipating that. And I think I did in the end. But the bottom line is this isn't a game. <laughs> when you send someone threatening emails or letters or write op-eds in papers like the Wall Street Journal attacking them, uh, there are consequences. And we see those consequences still today, unfortunately. And Nick, at that, your son at that point was, I think, quite young, and he slept with a wooden sword, right? Yeah, he had a little wooden sword, I still have it, uh, <laughs> at home, that he put next to the side of, of mm. the bed. Mm. Again, because he didn't feel safe uh, in, in our house. And no one can take that away. No one can remove uh, that sense of not feeling safe in your own house. Did you consider quitting science? In 1996, I did um, for a variety of reasons. Um, my life was falling apart. My marriage had fallen apart. And I wondered whether it was worth it continuing with science. Uh, Steve, at that vulnerable moment in my personal and professional history, encouraged me to stick with it. I remember vividly what he told me, that the attacks that I was experiencing meant that the work my colleagues and I were doing really mattered to others. And that in science, you often measure yourself not by the number and quality of papers you accumulate over time that you publish, but by the number and the power of the enemies you accumulate over time. It was sort of welcome to the club, Ben, <laughs> because at that time in 1996, Steve, who had spoken so powerfully and clearly about the reality and seriousness of climate change, one of the first bellwether voices, had experienced uh, his fair share of uh, public attacks. Fearless, yeah. Unfortunately, many climate scientists have experienced that. I think you perhaps more than, than most. You also got harassed with freedom of information 
requests. Tell us about that. So the, the harassment kind of moved from rats on the doorstep to other types of harassment. Well, Freedom of Information Act requests, open record requests, are a legitimate tool for shedding light on complex issues, um, enhancing transparency in government, but they can also be abused for illegitimate purposes. And in the early 2000s, that's exactly what happened to many climate scientists, not only here in the United States, but also in the UK, where uh, bad actors, folks who were not interested in improving understanding of the science, overwhelmed universities and individual researchers and research institutes with specious open records requests to eat up their time, to throw a spanner in the works, to prevent them from doing their jobs. That still continues to this day, unfortunately, which is one of the reasons I do not wish to have any federal funding. Because if I receive federal funding, then I am subject to those requests. You have to lawyer up, right? And if you work for a national lab, like, you know, who represents you? Is that the, the lab's job? Or do you have to hire your own lawyer? And there's actually a nonprofit out there that raises money to, to legally defend scientists, right? I think the challenge is, Greg, how do you want to spend your time? Do you want to spend your time doing science? That's what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for spending days, weeks, months dealing with a succession of specious Freedom of Information Act requests. That's not how I want to spend my time. And you spent decades at a national lab, um, and you are you know, kind of Mr. Fingerprint. You've kind of pioneered this area of, of attribution science. Why don't you tell us what is a human fingerprint, and how do we know? Because that science has evolved quite a bit. I stood on the shoulders of giants. Uh, so one of those giants was Klaus Hasselmann, who back in 1979 wrote the first paper outlining an elegant mathematical approach for doing fingerprinting, for separating, if you will, a human-caused global warming signal from the background noise of natural climate variability. Think things like El Niños, La Niñas, the rich natural fluctuations in climate on monthly, interannual, decadal, and longer timescales. You hear that all the time, you know, like, oh, climate's always changing. It's always has, always will. Eh. Right. And it does. And will in the future and has in the past. But what we're doing by burning fossil fuels and increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and other potent greenhouse gases is we're increasing the ability of the atmosphere to trap heat and thereby warming the surface of the planet and the oceans. We're changing everything. We fingerprinted pretty much every aspect of the climate system and human fingerprints are everywhere. Hasselmann's key insight back in 79 was look at patterns. If you move beyond one number, the average temperature of the planet, global mean temperature, and look at the complexity of geographical patterns of climate change, or slices through the atmosphere, right from the stratosphere over 20 um, kilometers above the surface down to the depths of the ocean, then you have a better chance in that pattern analysis of separating human fingerprints 
from natural climate variability. And that's what I've done together with brilliant women and men all around the world, many of them here in this audience tonight, is we've tried to fingerprint the climate system. And it used to be, you would hear on the news all the time, well, no single event can be linked to climate change. You have to look at patterns over time. Uh, I remember when Hurricane Sandy hit New York, Bloomberg, Business Week, this, it's climate change, stupid. You know, where are we now? Can, you, can we today say this storm, this drought, this flood is climate change? So... In some cases, we can say that this particular event, like the off-the-charts warming in the Pacific Northwest a few years ago, mm -hmm. would have been impossible without climate change. 106 in Portland. It was so far off the charts, so far outside of any instrumental records, it couldn't have happened without human-caused warming of the surface of the Earth and the atmosphere and the oceans. So what you speak to is this area of research called event attribution, where after the 2003 European summer heat wave, catastrophic event, excess mortality of roughly 70,000 people, warming of nearly two degrees Celsius relative to normal temperatures, catastrophic event. And scientists in the UK ran a climate model with human effects on climate and without human effects on climate in order to assess how human-caused warming had changed the likelihood of something like the European summer heat wave. And that is now being done routinely. It's being done by one of my colleagues here in the audience, Michael Weiner, uh, in very innovative and sophisticated ways. The bottom line from pretty much all of this research is we're changing the odds. So Steve Schneider's analogy was loading the die. <laughs> um, we're, we're, we're changing the dice so that uh, it's more likely to get longer lasting, more extreme, extreme events. Think droughts, floods, heat waves, and that's bad. We're playing a game that's not a game and we're loading the die in favor of bad outcomes. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Today on Climate One, a conversation with Ben Santer. He's this year's winner of the Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or a review. You can also help by sending a link to this episode or another episode to one of your friends. Coming up, why Ben feels so strongly that scientists can't back down, even when they're under attack. There are times when you have to choose, when there's a fork in the road. <laughs> And those choices may be tremendously difficult. Be brave. That's up next when Climate One continues. We'll be right back.
Let's get back to Greg's conversation with atmospheric scientist Ben Santer in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. From 2016 to 2020, a lot of things happened. Wildfires really took off in the American West. Storms that I can't even remember happened. They kind of blur and roll into another. Um, That was a tough time for you working at a national lab in a political climate hostile to your work. Tell us about that period. It was a difficult four-year period. Um, I love my job. I was working together with some of the best and the brightest, such a joy to spend decades of my life together with them, trying to evaluate climate models, trying to fingerprint the climate system, trying to understand how this beautiful and complex world in which we live is changing and why it's changing. But the Trump administration was no big fan of this kind of work. And they did not want us to do this kind of work or to speak about it or to speak about it in terms of fingerprinting. Uh, Folks wanted these euphemisms. And to me, there's no point being a scientist if you're unwilling to speak publicly about the technical work that you do, if you're unwilling to defend it when it comes under unjustified political attack. And I'm proud of the fact that we did. We didn't just roll over and say, this powerful individual, the President of the United States, is incorrectly dismissing everything we're doing as a hoax and a conspiracy. It's not. And we all lose if we let that narrative of hoax and conspiracy prevail. We can't allow that to happen. So we continue doing this critically important work, and I'm proud to say that it continues at Livermore today. We need evidence. which I think we'll be talking about in a few minutes. The courts need evidence, and scientists need to provide the best scientific information on the nature and causes of climate change. So you left, and the work goes on. You're now working at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. You're an atmospheric scientist, not an oceans person. <laughs> what are you doing there? How do they let you in? And, um, <laughs> and um, what are you learning? Well... Woods Hole has kindly given me a two months per year gig. And it turns out that you can teach an old dog new tricks. So I have spent most of my professional life in the atmosphere, doing fingerprinting with temperature in the atmosphere, with moisture, with many different things. But I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to the ocean. This was an opportunity to do fingerprinting in the ocean to learn from some of the best and the brightest, the folks at Woods Hole make a ton of interesting and innovative measurements of ocean temperature and salinity and what's happening under Antarctic ice shelves. And they build robotic systems that go to the depths of the ocean that now look at not only temperature and salinity, but ocean chemistry as well. My job is to try and interact with those folks who make the measurements and to use them for fingerprinting, for understanding how and why the oceans are changing. It's wonderful. 
and the oceans have really saved us. They're the mind-boggling. I mean, the oceans are absorbing a huge amount of carbon, and now if if they weren't doing that, it would be insanely more hot, right? Yeah, the oceans have been uh, absorbing much of the heat, over 90% of the heat that we have generated by mm. burning fossil fuels and increasing levels of heat trapping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So it seems critically important to understand how the oceans are changing, particularly at depth where we have so few measurements. Um, much of the ocean is tabula rasa and the folks at Woods Hole and many other oceanographic institutions around the world are trying to fill in the gaps and help us understand how the oceans are changing. So it's wonderful at this late stage in my life to be mentoring young students, to be thinking about the oceans, and to recognize that my expertise still has value to others. Do you feel more free not working for a national lab? Can you like be more edgy with your words, with your, can you, I mean, because working for a national lab, there's certain constraints. Do you feel liberated? I was always pretty edgy, I would say. <laughs> but I was very mindful of my colleagues. You know, I was for some period of time until my colleague, Celine Bonfi, uh, who's here in the audience tonight, took over. I was the leader of the climate change detection and attribution group at Lawrence Livermore. And these were my colleagues in that group and my friends, and I didn't want to do anything that might negatively impact them, their funding, their families. So it was very difficult being in that position where you're charged with trying to uh, secure funding for a group. But at the same time as you're charged with doing that, the very work you're doing is coming under unjustified political attack. What do you do? Do you just zip it and say nothing? Or do you continue to try and do the best research you possibly can while also speaking publicly about the importance of doing that work? That's what I chose to do. And there's quite a debate now about scientists, whether they ought to stick, stay in their lane, or you know, some scientists get political and start making policy prescriptions. Um, Rose Abramoff was fired from a, from a national lab for protesting. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is the, you know, we are in this urgent crisis. What is the appropriate role of a scientist and where are, where are the lines? Well, that's a great question. And I think that it is critically important to delimit the boundaries of your expertise, which I always try and do. I'm a physical climate scientist. I spent my entire career trying to understand the climate system, how we're changing it by increasing greenhouse gases, but also how it changes naturally through volcanoes and intrinsic variability and all that nice stuff. But at the same time, like Steve Schneider, I'm a citizen of this planet. And I care a lot, as you do, about the kind of world we are bequeathing to our kids and our grandkids and many, many future generations. It's intensely frustrating to me to see this disconnect between our mature scientific understanding of the reality and seriousness of climate change and political inaction, which we're witnessing on a daily basis. So 
I do think it's important for scientists to get out of their comfort zone sometimes and, and speak not only uh, as experts, but say I'm speaking as a human being, as, as a father, uh, as, as, as a wife, as someone who cares about this. These are my values. And I want you to understand that when I'm speaking about my values, I'm speaking from the heart as a human being. So I try and do that in all of my public lectures now. I, I talk about fingerprinting, I talk about evidence, I talk about the importance of evidence, but I also talk about being a human being and human values and the imperative of trying to fix things before it's, it's too late. And there, I am now increasingly willing to get into policy issues and willing to say what I, what I feel as a non-expert on these issues, but from my interaction with real experts, I think carbon pricing, some form of carbon pricing, uh, is the way to go in addressing this problem. And another area like that, um, Lawrence Livermore uh, National Lab has been in the news recently for nuclear fusion. Um, some people think that that's the holy grail. Uh, that's not your area of expertise, but you were inside that institution. Um, are you excited about the prospect of fusion? That, that experiment was, they created net positive energy for a fraction of a second. Many institutions, not just Livermore, are uh, pursuing fusion research, a variety of different forms, Livermore's with lasers, others with very powerful uh, magnets. Let's hope that some of these things pan out, but betting <laughs> on that, betting that one of them will go from essentially a, a demonstration to sustained practical fusion energy in a time frame where it can really make a difference to us. I'm skeptical about that personally. Uh, I think we need to do the things we can do already as, as um, powerfully and at scale uh, without waiting for some magic bullet that may or may not be on the horizon. Let's do what we can now and get our act together. Rather than some techno fix down the horizon, right? It means we don't have to change our ways. So much of what you and other climate scientists have been predicting for decades have come true faster than predicted and expected with devastating impacts around the world, devastating human impacts. What's it like? Do you ever feel like, I told you so. No, I feel sadness. There's great intellectual satisfaction in doing this kind of work. It's a detective story, a whodunit. And you never, they don't ever think if you would just listen to us. I've, I've really loved improving in a small way our understanding of the nature and causes of climate change. But as some of the, these predictions have come to pass, there's sadness, there's no joy in seeing something that someone predicted 55 years ago, the warming of the troposphere and the cooling of the upper atmosphere as we ramp up uh, levels of greenhouse gases. Uh, we've shown that, others have shown that now, 
as clearly as you possibly can. 1950, Edward Teller, your former colleague at Livermore, told the American Petroleum Institute at Columbia University, you've got a problem. Yeah, we've, we've known about the problem of human intervention in the climate system for a long time. And the evidence has gotten stronger and clearer every year almost, which brings us to 2021 and the sixth assessment report of the IPCC. And this famous word unequivocal, it is unequivocal that human fingerprints are everywhere in the climate system, in the oceans, in the land, in the atmosphere. We can't deny that reality anymore. It's all around us. And yet political action and ambition is out of sync with that mature scientific understanding. That's the frustration. Yeah, it's, it's nice to do this work, but there's no joy in seeing predictions come true. There's no, I told you so. Coming up, how Ben's climate detective work is showing up in court. There would be no climate law without climate science. And um, Dr. Santer's work is, is particularly pivotal in this case. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. It's inspiring listening to how Ben Santer has dealt with the indirect and direct threats on his work, including having this weird visit at his house. I think that it's unfortunate we live in a world where scientists are threatened when they publish things that are true. Um, but Ben is an example of someone who stood by his work and has, you know, really earned this award that we're giving this year. And I think it's fitting for him to win an award named after Steve Schneider. Steve Schneider, of course, wrote a book called Science as a Contact Sport. He did. And speaking of fights or disagreements or arguments, Ben's work has also entered another arena, the courts. His science lays the foundation to connect specific polluters to specific climate impacts. This is something called attribution science, and this analysis has been a key part of emerging climate change litigation. It's really important stuff. Right. In fact, Ben has been spending time teaching judges about climate science so they know how to weigh this kind of new evidence in their courtrooms like fingerprinting or satellite data, and cases involving oil company damages. To discuss all this, I invited Cassie Siegel, director of the Climate Law Institute at the Center for Biological Diversity, to join Ben and me on stage. I wanted to explore how these fields of science and law are working together to achieve climate progress. So I've interacted with the court system uh, for about the last two years or so. Uh, with federal judges, with judges here in California, with judges in Korea uh, as part of a bilateral U.S.-Korean uh, meeting. And it's important. I, I think the courts need to understand best practices for introducing this complex scientific evidence in a court of law. But there are also forces of unreason out there who don't want this to happen. They don't want scientists to educate judges. And that's where many of these specious open records requests have been coming from recently, from folks who don't want scientists communicating with the court. 
Cassie, California filed a big case against five of the world's largest oil companies and the American Petroleum Institute. You think it's an elegant case. Uh, California's been sitting on the sidelines for quite a while, finally jumped in, uh, arguing that emissions caused the problem and the companies lied about it. Tell us about that case. Yeah, it's it's an incredible, powerful case that California filed back in September, just as the UN Climate Ambition Summit was getting underway in New York. California filed um, the latest in what's called the climate accountability litigation. And these cases are very powerful tools for holding fossil fuel companies accountable for the damage that they've caused and the lies that they've told. And in California's case, like the other climate damages cases, um, the plaintiffs are arguing that the oil companies knew about the climate science, they lied about the climate science, and therefore they should be held accountable. So um, it's, it's, it's really, um, I, I really think it's a pivotal moment, the, the filing of California's case. And, and also, I just want to say, like, there would be no climate law without climate science. And um, Dr. Santer's work is, is particularly pivotal in this case. Like, the, the causal chain and the argument that they're making in this case is that fossil fuel production and the combustion of the fossil fuels led to the carbon dioxide emissions that led to massive climate damages. And therefore, the companies that produce the fossil fuels, that profited from the fossil fuels, should pay for the damage. And so that's the scientific underpinning. And then there is the second part, which is the lying. And what's so fascinating is that in the California complaint, the 1995 attacks on Dr. Santer, those false attacks are actually mentioned in the complaint. And so the complaint, it's the legal filing um, that starts the case. It tells, um, you know, lays out the elements of the case. It doesn't give every detail. So if something's mentioned in the complaint, it's usually a pretty big deal. It hasn't gone to trial, of course. None, none of these types of cases have, but um, I think it's quite likely um, that at trial, that would be a key piece of evidence, and it would be poetic justice on an epic scale <laughs> if those false attacks on Dr. Santer become um, one of the pieces of evidence that is the basis of liability and then the payment um, of billions of dollars in damages by these companies for the damage they caused and the lies that they told. So to, to re just yeah capture that so it's like because the companies say look we make this oil you put it in your car you burn it it goes up in the sky it goes all over the world you can't connect this refinery with this eroded uh, ocean or this this climate impact right but Ben Santer's work comes in and says oh yes you can you can link this burning to this damage in this place in this time then what was it like to Note that you know the companies that were attacking you for lying now are you know citing you. You're, you're cited in these court cases. What's it like to be? It's chilling to see some of this stuff come out. We were discussing backstage this paper that was published earlier this year that showed that Exxon's own climate scientists, forty years ago or more, were making projections of 
carbon dioxide increase with fossil fuel burning, global warming with that carbon dioxide increase, and their own internal corporate projections were every bit as skillful as the projections of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Exxon got it right. They knew, they predicted accurately what was going to happen. They got it right, not just qualitatively, but quantitatively. And at the same time, Exxon, in its own internal documents and briefings to directors, was saying, yeah, this detection stuff, it's right. The, the counter-narratives that all warming is natural and due to the sun or internal fluctuations in climate, they're not credible. And it was that that was so shocking to me, that disconnect between that internal corporate understanding in 1995 and going after the IPCC and um, folks like me. That, I would hope, gets them into some trouble. That was misleading their shareholders. It was misleading the public. And I hope they are held accountable for that. So let's take a specific example, say Chevron refinery in Richmond, for example, um, you know, one of the largest greenhouse gas emissions uh, polluters in the state of California. How can you say how much of the coast erodes because of, of that one facility? How much can you say that the wildfires that have ravaged the American West or California are because of that one facility? They, that's their defense. It's like, we can't know. It's a global problem and it crosses borders. You can't pin this on this one facility or this one company. Well, people have for some years now done what's called source attribution, where you know from the internal accounting how much individual companies emit. And that is the basis for trying to figure out some share of damages. In the last couple of years, we can go better than that. We don't have to rely on a company's reported emissions uh, and do the accounting. We can measure it from space. We now have satellite measurements that enable us to look at the emissions from individual sources and individual countries. That ultimately is the basis for treaty verification and for making sure that uh, companies and countries are accurately reporting their emissions. So going forward, it's going to be tough to evade responsibility <laughs> for the emissions that you make as a corporate actor. Right. So Cassie, how, how's that going to affect, because that's been a, you know, one of the key links missing in, in litigation is like, well, you can't, we don't, can't really pin this much on us. And, you know, so how's that going to affect the cases, you think? Well, that's, a, that's another um, key piece of the science. So as Dr. Santer um, alluded to, the source attribution, there's a database called the Carbon Majors Database that Rikidi and the Climate Accountability Institute have been working on for many years, and it takes um, all of the uh, fossil fuel production as reported by the companies themselves, the world's largest investor-owned and uh, state-owned fossil fuel companies, based on their own reporting of their production since the Industrial Revolution. And they show that a relatively small number of companies is responsible for a big chunk of emissions. So about the top 100 companies responsible for about two-thirds of the world emis um, emissions, just the top 20 companies responsible for about one-third. So those are the companies that you tend to, be, tend to see uh, showing up as the defense 
defendants in this climate accountability um, litigation, and then you add on another area of research where you say, okay, based on those emissions, how much are the companies responsible for in terms of uh, air temperature warming, ocean warming, ocean acidification, and so forth. And again, you, uh, they show that small number of companies, about 90 companies, for example, responsible for about half of um, uh, surface temperature warming. So it's how the science just keeps building on itself, right? So, but, you know, without that, without that IPCC second assessment report in 1995, none of the rest of this um, would have been possible. Because it keeps right. advancing. Ben, you've said that climate science uh, today is where DNA was 30 years ago and, uh, with respect to the courts. Now DNA is used to convict criminals and release innocent people, people wrongfully incarcerated. So say more about how that and how you would explain climate fingerprinting to a judge or jury. 25, 30 years ago, DNA evidence was novel and it was complex, it was technical. How do you explain this information to judges? How do you give them best practices for considering such evidence in a court of law? To me, that's what my colleagues and I can do with fingerprinting and with event attribution and with satellite temperature data that has been the subject of much political discussion we can provide information about how it's done, uh, what the uncertainties are in this kind of work, what we need to pay attention to, uh, and what the likely interventions are. What, what are people gonna criticize if this is introduced in a court of law? It's, it's important to educate the courts in advance to tell them about evidence and how that evidence has evolved over time. I see that as a critically important function of scientists, not to say, here, read this paper or these dozens of papers or this IPCC report. No, that's not good enough. You have to be able to be accountable to talk about the evidence, its limitations, its strengths in front of the people who will be judging that evidence. And Kathy, is there, on the other side, do, are, do judges, what access does industry have to wine and dine and play golf with judges? <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they have a lot of influence and they're really blatant about it. And one of the things that, um, you know, is so enraging is that they just, they just um, you know, the nerve to um, be, you know, pushing the envelope beyond what we can even imagine on their side, and then going after um, in in such a vicious way, um, attempts to really um, educate judges and and advance science and and the public interest. Yes, public well. opinion around climate change has shifted dramatically since uh, ninety five and Ben's twelve words, but you know the courts. Science moves slowly, climate moves quickly, courts move slowly. There are about some, what, some three dozen cases or so moving through the courts right now. Cassie, how do you think we're going to start to see these decisions? And what are some of the clusters of types of cases that, that are out there? It's hard for me, and I do this, do this for a living, to keep track of all the different cases. Some are kind of product liability, some are, some are lying, some are uh, damages, nuisances. 
Yeah, so we have um, three dozen cases in what um, is the uh, climate accountability um, line of cases. And there are um, climate damages components of those cases, and that is based on the polluter pays principle. So that's like baked into our legal system that um, the polluter who caused the pollution, who profited from it, should, should pay, not the public. And then we have um, consumer protect, uh, protection claims um, in there where that's based on um, uh, laws which uh, prohibit false and deceptive advertising and seek to hold the companies accountable when they're lying um, about their fossil fuels. There's another type of claim, which is products liability, which may sound familiar. Um, and that is when you um, manufacture a product which is dangerous when used as intended, and you fail to warn the public about that danger, you can then be held liable for that. And in the fossil fuel example, not only did they fail to warn, they actually actively misled. Um, and then there's another um, line of cases under the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act, or RICO, where you can be held liable when you conspire to do something that's illegal or fraudulent. And um, Dozens of local governments in Puerto Rico have filed um, a RICO case against the fossil fuel companies for, um, you know, it's based around the horribly damaging 2017 hurricane season and the damage that Puerto Rico experienced there. Hoboken, New Jersey has filed a RICO case. And this is just in the climate accountability arena, right? <laughs> the, the type of law that I do is actually mostly um, uh, based on enforcing the flagship environmental laws passed by Congress, so the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, which are actually very well suited to addressing greenhouse pollution just like other environmental problems. There's constitutional claims, there's many more, and that's just in U.S. law. <laughs> How concerned are you about this, this Supreme Court rolling a lot of this back? Yeah, so I am very concerned about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has lost its integrity. It, it needs to be fixed. It can be fixed. Um, Congress can add seats. They can put in um, uh, term limits. They can put in a conflict of ethics policy. So it is a huge problem. This Supreme Court is in the business of changing the law, right, for results-oriented um, outcomes, but I don't. But but that said, we we need to address that. But we also we can't let that prevent us from going to the judicial branch because it is a huge um, part of our government. It's a huge part of the um, solution. And even this Supreme Court is not going to be able to intervene in every single case. We still win a lot, even with um, you know the terribly unbalanced judiciary and shift to the hard right um, that, that we've seen over the course of my lifetime. Right. Um, and Cassie, there's some cases that places to watch in the courts as climate comes into the courts. Um, you say the Hawaiian Supreme Court has strong knowledge of climate science and is one state to watch. What's happening in Hawaii that we should know and care about? Yeah, so in Hawaii, the Supreme Court has issued a couple of really remarkable opinions recently showing that the court really understands the science, really understands the climate crisis. One was in, actually, they were considering an agency's denial of a biomass power plant. 
and um, the agency denied it. They said, we actually see through your greenwashing. This is actually not good for the climate. And the court understood that, and they also found that under Hawaii's constitution, there is a right to a safe and livable climate. Mm -hmm. And this is a big deal. There's a constitutional case brought by youth moving forward in Hawaii, and I think it's also a very good sign for the climate damages cases that have been brought by Honolulu and Maui against the fossil fuel polluters for the damage. So very, very interesting um, things uh, to look for there. Also, Montana, similar case, you know, big win there with Held versus Montana. Again, youth saying there's a, a winning uh, a judgment there that there's a constitutional right to a safe environment in, in Montana, though that seems like that's probably going to be overturned by a conservative uh, Supreme Court in Montana. You just never know. You just never know what's going to happen next until it happens. But there have been some um, really encouraging advances. And I mean, that's one overall point is like there would be no climate law without climate science. So um, my work in these cases would not be possible without um, Dr. Sanders' work and all the other scientists. So it's just a really um, wonderful opportunity and an honor to be able to say thank you to Dr. Santer personally. Um, you know, it's the, you know the, the science, it's hard and it's dangerous and it's really obvious how it's physically dangerous if you're like out there on the Greenland ice sheet. But in many ways, I think it's more dangerous when the fossil fuel industry goes after you. So um, it's just really um, nice to be able to say thank you on my behalf and lots of other lawyers and activists who admire and um, depend on your work for hours. Thank you. <laughs> the work is the reward. And there's this narrative out there that all this bad stuff has happened to you and dead rats on the doorstep and congressional investigation and funding cuts. But no, I've had the extraordinary privilege to work on issues that really matter to you and to other people together with brilliant women and men all around the world. That's not victimhood, that's extraordinary privilege. And the thing that I'm grateful for is that I can continue doing it in some small way today. On this Climate One, we've been talking with atmospheric scientist Ben Santer, our winner for this year's Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication. You can find conversations with all of our past award winners and many, many other conversations on our website, climateone.org. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard, awkward, especially around these holidays. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. You can help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Greg Dalton is our host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Austin Colon is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wensi Shada is our development manager. And Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. 
Gloria Duffy and Philip Yun are co-CEOs of the Commonwealth Club World Affairs, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Ariana Brocious. Thanks for listening.